The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Revival. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. from Isaiah 64, 1-4, and Ephesians 6, 10-18. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand on the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. This is the word of the Lord. You've just joining us. We have for the last, well, this is week number three of being in a sermon series on revival. Uh, and really the aim of this whole series is to, to stir a longing within us, a desire to see God act in, in big ways, to see revival unfold before us. And, and we've been talking, revival is basically like this three-phase thing where revival in revival, God awakens people, individuals, to who he is and who we are and what he has done for us in the gospel. Then he moves on to, to revitalizing the church. The church grows. The church is strengthened and matured in the season. And then we even see how the church and God's people affect the culture. Not, not, just, not just the church, but the culture, the city at large for the glory of God and for the good of his people. And so basically what this is, revival is to, to, to see what's in heaven come down to earth. 
right? That's what we're asking for in revival. And I've sensed that over these last couple weeks that we are catching some of Isaiah's hunger, his passion that we see in, in Isaiah 64. He says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. I feel that, that we're starting to feel that in our bones and praying big prayers for that. And I pray that it multiplies and that God would be gracious and show us things, that he would reveal himself to us in ways that we couldn't even imagine and do great things for his glory, for the advancement of the kingdom. And as we're praying these big prayers and longing for a revival, at the same time, I want to give you today a heads up about what might, comes might, what might come next. Because we're praying these big, grandiose prayers, and it might think, okay, it's all up and to the right from here. But the reality is, as we have a passion for the gospel, as we pray big prayers for revival, what happens is we now have a target on our backs. Right? We, now, we, we become targeted, we run opposed because there is a rival to revival. There is an opponent. Jonathan Edwards, who is a, a major contributor in the First Great Awakening, says that every advance of revival involves severe conflict with fallen human nature and the powers of darkness. So as we ask for revival, what happens is we're being thrust into the midst of a spiritual war, and the battleground of this war is our hearts. Now, I don't know about you. I, I think, having talked to many of you, I, I think that we are feeling this war being waged. I, th I think that some of us are, are experiencing, maybe in some greater capacities than other people, but we have this, this feeling of, yes, I am, my soul is in conflict, there is something going on, I can't quite put my finger on what's going on, but it's definitely not smooth sailing, right? right this life of following Jesus is hard, and, and sometimes I just feel like, man, it's, it's overwhelming. And so I know that I'm feeling that. I know that some of you are feeling it. And as we feel this, this opposition, does that mean that we stop asking God to bring revival? Does it mean that we stop asking him to rend the heavens and come down? No. Never. See, revival entails pushing back darkness with the light of Christ. That means that as we push back, there's going to be resistance. And so we press on with asking God to rend the heavens and come down. At the same time, we learn how to fight well. We learn how to engage in this spiritual warfare that's happening. I think a perfect picture, a perfect example of this is Nehemiah, Old Testament prophet who, who felt the call from God to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple after it had been destroyed. And here he has this real work to do, right? This real work of rebuilding the temple, of seeing Jerusalem kind of go back to the flourishing state that it once had. And in the midst of it, he's working with one hand and he's got a sword in the other hand to fend off those who are adversaries trying to prevent him from doing the work that he's called to do. I feel like that's what church planting is, right? With one hand, we work, we do the work of the ministry that God's called us to do. and the other hand, we carry a sword to fight off the enemy who's wanting to sabotage all that we do. And I think that when we hear this language of spiritual warfare, when we, we hear this, this language, that, that the battlefield imagery where there's an enemy who stands against us, we tend to have an unhealthy reaction to this. C.S. Lewis, in, in the prologue to the Screwtape Letters, he says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, human race, can fall about the devils, right, the dark spirits. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. 
So there are two ways that we can, there's two ditches on the side of, or on each side of the road that we could veer into. We deny the reality of the enemy, or we can have this infatuation with him that leaves us on, in an unhealthy state. And the Bible, thankfully, gives us a healthy perspective on life. In fact, this is, this is one of the most stabilizing things that you have at your fingertips to navigate life. And I think a lot of us, we're, we're frantic, or we're in a frenzy, we've got our anxiety, all these things that are pulling our hearts in different directions. If we would just to retreat to the word of God, we would find an anchor for our soul in Christ here in the word. And so this reorients us to reality. And what Ephesians 6 does, it shows us the reality of the spiritual warfare that's waging right now. The, the reality that we do have a real enemy, and, and also Paul shows us how we can fight against him. So here we see it, he, he acknowledges, be strong in the Lord's strength and put on the armor of God that you may stand against the schemes of the devil. So here Paul acknowledges we have an enemy, that enemy is Satan, the devil, who's real, he's menacing, and he's within striking distance, right? Paul kind of flushes those things out. He's real, he's menacing, within striking distance. He does that in verses 10 through 13. Now, here by acknowledging, he's showing us he's, he's real, that if, if, you want, if you deny the existence, if you ignore the reality of Satan, you are far more likely to be tempted. In fact, if, if you're not aware of Satan at all, you're either being used by him or you're being duped by him. Right? The, the Bible makes us aware of his schemes. I forget, G.I. Joe, what's that quote, Eric, you were telling me before? Half the battle is knowing, something like that? Knowing, knowing is half the battle. Quote, courtesy of G.I. Joe. <laughs> so knowing, not knowing, ignoring makes us more susceptible. And, and when we think about the devil, I think a lot of times pop culture influences our outlook on him, right? The movies sort of dictate what, what we think of the demonic, of, of, of what is Satan's nature. But, but we need to come to scriptures, and scripture tells us, I'm just, I don't have time to do a, a Satanology or a demonology here, but I can tell you this here, that Satan is a created being. He is not equal to God. He is not the yin to God's yang. He is subjected to God in power and strength. And as a created angel, Satan was the most beautiful of angels, is what we're told. And his beauty led to this pride where he, he felt jealous of God. He wanted to be worshipped, and so he rebelled against God along with a third of the angels. And, and what, what Satan does is he's working to counteract everything God stands for. And so this is where we see how he's menacing. He's trying to ru ruin, trying to, to uh, obstruct whatever good God has come to accomplish in Christ. He's like a, a mosquito, a, a pest in this way, in the room, just trying to, to get on your nerves, trying to agitate you and trying to get you distracted. Except unlike a mosquito who just wants a little bit of your blood, Satan wants it all. He wants, his aim is to steal, kill, and destroy. And he does that by hindering us from entering into God's presence, which is the essence of revival. And in doing that, he's trying to unravel all of God's work that he's done in Christ to bring us near to him. And so in this way, we can see that Satan is anti-God, he's anti-revival, he's anti-church. Charles Spurgeon says that if ever the church of God is to be built... It will be in troubled times. 
When God's servants are active, Satan is not without vigilant followers to seek to counteract their efforts. See, this is the menacing act of the enemy. But in that quote, Charles Spurgeon also points something else. The devil has help, right? The the devil is not omnipresent. He's not like God. There's not a devil behind every bush. But he does have help that is under his influence. There's demonic forces. There's human evil that's used to uh, advance his agenda. And so in this way, we can see and feel the closeness of his evil influence. Right? This is what Paul's talking about when he says that, that our, our, uh, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. When, you, when you're wrestling, you have to be close to someone. Like, no, you don't wrestle from across the room. You have to be in. And then there's a sense where we feel that, that we feel that friction. We feel that, that movement up against the enemy. And that might be his, his demonic forces. That might be the evil systemic forces that he's put in place, human evil working against us, or even our own sin that's at work in our own lives. And it's in this way that we, we brush up against. We wrestle with his evil. And this is all at Satan's disposal to pull us away from God and to undermine the kingdom work that Jesus has begun. Now, the reality is that when we are passionate about the gospel, right, when we sing like we just sang in worship this morning, when we pray for these big revival prayers, we should expect opposition, Like, we should be ready for it. We don't need to be discouraged when that opposition comes. Like, when we face setbacks or somebody leaves our missional community or something's going on and I feel like I'm just caught back in this rut of sin that I wanted to break free or thought I broke free from a long time ago. And so we should be ready for and anticipate these trials and setbacks that the enemy will come and bring against us. In fact, I would be concerned if we weren't feeling any of that at all. Like, if, if our church was just smooth sailing, everything going fine, no problems at all, nobody facing conflict, I would say that we are actually in more danger in that position than if we're going up against the enemy in real trials and tribulations. In fact, George Whitfield, he says this. He was another guy around during the, the, the Great Awakening. He says, if a minister, or a church for that matter, can go from the beginning of January to the end of December with perfectly whole skin, It proves the devil didn't find them worthy of his attention because they were already rendered ineffective. See, the devil doesn't go after people who are just duds, spiritual duds. The the devil goes after the places where he senses life and vibrancy, gospel passion. So, if we're going to be this church, passionate about Jesus, praying big prayers for revival, we need to know Satan and his tactics. We need to be like a football team who will do hours and hours of film study to learn the tendencies of their opponent so that we can come out and and win the game. And when we talk about Satan, there's this cunningness that's attributed to him. He's he's a crafty schemer. He's really good at, at, at kind of working underneath the radar, going undetected. In fact, I I can't think of who said it, but he says like we usually don't realize Satan's at work until his, his hand is around our throat. That, that most of the time, most of his actions is so subversive, so subtle, that we don't realize it until it's come to the point where I think I'm being choked out. 
And so we don't want to be ignorant of him and his schemes. We don't want to to be unaware of the hindrances that he tries to lay out in front of us, either before or during a season of revival. So what are these schemes? What is Satan doing? Well, yeah, we can say there's flagrant schemes. There's, There's the demonic attack, the blatant persecution that we might brush up against. But if that's the only kind of scheme that we're looking for, we're going to be caught like uh, somebody who's defending their home from a burglar with a ski mask and not paying attention to the pickpocket who's in their own room right now picking their pocket. See, Satan is effective at both. He can do whatever he wants in both the the flagrant and in the subtle to, to try to derail what God is doing. And the subtle ones are the ones that we're most likely to fall prey to. And some of the most utilized schemes, the most subtle schemes, the most covert schemes are the most frequently deployed against us, and we don't realize what Satan's doing until it's too late. Now, in the seasons where revival's going on, you can look at the history books and and people who who have sort of... Uh, documented what's going on in these seasons of revival, there's a few things that we can see that happens in the midst of revival. First of all, there's vocal dissenters, people who are critics of the church, of any sort of gospel revival. There's those who come in as false teachers trying to delude the gospel with counterfeit gospels. We sort of touched on that last week. There's this tendency that the enemy has to go after new converts, people who have just placed their faith in Jesus, and then he starts bombarding them with trial after trial, trying to peel them away. We see how he, he offers, the enemy offers this false sense of revival. We just get excited enough at the idea of revival, but not necessarily with revival or Jesus itself. So a false sense of zeal. We see how he can divide and disqualify leaders in the church. And so that, those are a few ways where he tries to knock over uh, the bicycle when it's cruising, right? He tries to blow it over and stop it from going any further. And so the, there are also some schemes that... Satan uses to sabotage revival as it's gaining speed, as it's starting to pick up. There's preventative tactics he uses to keep revival from happening. Richard Loveless, who wrote the book Dynamics of Spiritual Life, said that often the real enemy to be fought is not the visible oppressing powers of darkness, but the idolatry and apostasy by which the powers of darkness have reoccupied the hearts of God's people. So here again, he's, he's pointing out these subtle and, and sort of embedded tendencies that we have as sinners where he's leveraging our sinful tendencies and our weaknesses against us. And I feel like some of these here that I want to identify for you are, are the most common that I feel that as a church, we're coming up against on a daily basis, weekly basis, or even cyclical monthly basis. One of the most common ones that I sense right now and, and is this numbness and apathy that we tend to have, that we've grown cold. We've been entranced with sort of the status quo, and we've settled into life. We've become comfortable and content with the way things are, and so we just sort of put things on cruise control. And we see this reflected in how we worship. We're okay with coming on Sunday mornings and singing songs and putting an hour and a half aside for Jesus uh, and, and giving him his praise there. But when this Jesus makes claims of the entirety of my life, my pocketbook, my bed, the business choices that I make, all of these things, I don't want anything to do with it because that is too threatening for me. 
And so we shut down or put some sort of a governor on our desire for Jesus to limit how much of Jesus we really get. How, it's like the self-protection mode that we run into. And the more we do this, the more we, we sort of um, filter ourselves or, or, or subdue our desires, the more lifeless and spiritual lazy we become. We become like zombie Christians, just sort of going through the motions, you know, like... E- and so we just don't have this zeal. We don't have this life. We don't make an effort to, to work out our salvation with fear and t- trembling like Paul tells us to do in Philippians chapter 2. We don't experience our union with Jesus and draw from him like he is the vine and we are the branch, taking our sustenance and nourishment from him. We don't love the brotherhood, our missional community. We don't feel a zeal for mission. We're, in fact, we're kind of okay with just the way that people are. And so we become numb and cold and sort of just floating through. And, and par- partly it's be- we're fine with it because if we had a zeal, a passion for it, it would just inconvenience us anyway. Now I realize this is some of you. Some of you in the room, some of you are watching from home, and, and some of the people who are, aren't even listening right now. I think that COVID, this season of COVID has sort of brought that on maybe in a strong way, maybe stronger way than maybe we've ever felt before. But for some of us, this has been happening for years. We've been in this slothful, lazy, spiritually lazy position where it's like, I'm just going through the motions, I'm doing stuff because my wife expects me to do it, or it's just what we do on Sunday mornings. And so you go through the motions, but are you really engaging with Jesus? See, if you're just doing that, the devil's happy to keep you there, right? It gives you this false sense of accomplishment. Like, oh, yeah, I'm doing doing Jesus-y stuff, but you're just froze. And so Satan is pleased to keep us in this state of of numbness and apathy. Now, I realize there's another group of people who wouldn't necessarily fall in the the lazy category or apathetic category where where people maybe who feel this numbness or feel this like this severed line of communication, connection with God, not because you aren't doing things, not because you're not giving yourself to daily devotions and and praying on a daily basis and, and drawing from Jesus. You're doing the right things. It just feels like you can't get through to God. You can't sense his presence. You can't hear from him. And so it's like the phone line is down. And in that, you just get kind of numb, cold. And I know what this feels like. I know it's discouraging to go to your prayer closet and feel like, well, God must be on vacation again. It's frustrating. I think discouragement and frustration are two of the most effective weapons of Satan, right? In fact, in my life, the times where I feel most attacked by the enemy is when I'm in seasons of discouragement. It's like I'm doing all the right things, but nothing's happening. My heart feels cold. The church isn't going well. My MC is draining life from me instead of being a a life-giving thing. So I know what it's like to be discouraged, and listen, if you are in that state, if you're frustrated, you're discouraged, Satan wants you to just give up. He, he wants you to, to, to throw your hands up in the air and say, I guess this doesn't work. There's yet another scheme of distraction. 
And I know you felt this. If you've ever tried to pull out your Bible or set a, set a 10 minutes aside for prayer, and all you can think about is that text message you forgot to respond to. Or that uh, you got an Instagram post that you want to check to see how many likes or comments you've got. Right? There's always that distraction of, I've set time aside for God, I want to engage with God, yet there's something pulling me away. We're, we're in a place where Satan wants to keep us pacified with anything except for God. And so he tempts us with destructive things. Okay, This is just like... In life in general, here's how he's going to work. He's going to tempt you to pursue destructive things. He's going he's to make you want to drink more than you ought to drink, so you become slothful. Or, or pursue substances where you find some sort of gratification, but eventually you just got to keep doing it in order to maintain that buzz. He's going to put you in the direction of pornography or, or marriage outside of the confines of covenantal marriage. Or sex, what did I say? Sex outside of marriage. Out of, out of gossip, right? Just having some sort of critical spirit where you're, you're just too busy talking about people, too busy getting wrapped up in their business to be concerned about your business and what God wants to say to you. Or in social media. I got to de delete apps off of my phone because social media can be such a distraction. But it's not just these destructive things that he uses to distract us. He uses good things like our family, like, we can, he can use our family time to keep us from actually engaging with him. Or our work or career just be obsessed with making the next, you know, pay bump, getting that promotion. Or our health, oh, we got to keep our, our life on lockdown, make sure no germs get in our, in our house. Or, or just the obsession with fitness or money or our home and all the upgrades we want to do or all the hobbies that are at our disposal. He can use good things to, dis, to, to distract us from the great thing, the ultimate thing. And on top of that, he's just like playing on our heartstrings, using these natural tendencies, these vices to kind of divert us. He's crafty, and it works. Guys, it works. And I know you can attest to this just as much I, as I can, because we're like this bucket with a hole that we're constantly trying to fill ourselves up with stuff, right? We're trying to fill our buckets full, but there's this gaping hole in the bottle, the bottom that won't actually fill it, because all we use to fill this bucket is the finite things, it's all created stuff when it's meant for the creator of the universe, the infinite one, to be the only one or the only thing that can fill us up and satisfy our longings. See, as long as we're distracted with that stuff, the enemy wins. He's got us derailed. He's got us in this place where we're, we're just so preoccupied that we can't even think about God. Think about what God wants to do in our hearts or use us for in our, our workplace, our neighborhoods, our city. So that's the second main scheme. Now, here, let me just, the third and final one that I want to touch on is the scheme that the enemy has as the accuser. Romans chapter 12 talks about the, the accuser who's standing there pointing his finger, trying to condemn those of us who belong to God. He points at us and says, you're a screw up, you're too nasty, you're too vile, you're too late, you're too far gone. God doesn't want you. You're too much of a of a hindrance for God. And so what he does, he points at all of our wrongdoings, all of, our, all of the ways that we find ourselves lacking, and he exploits those with guilt and shame, trying to humiliate us. Like, you think you can, you think you can be friends with God? You think Jesus actually wants you? And so he plays on this to keep us from Jesus rather than letting us run to Jesus with our guilt and shame who can heal our infirmities and our wounds. 
He'll point and say, well, yeah, your repentance isn't real because you're doing the same thing again. You repented of that yesterday. If that was real repentance, you wouldn't be doing it again. You're just a poser. You're, you're used goods. You're on your own. It's up to you to get your life together. And so here he is. He's, he's chirping at us, accusing us, pointing the finger. And so when we get to this place, and, and this is what dominates our headspace, our heart space, we either cut ties with God and say, you know what? I'm going to just, it's easier for me to embrace the guilt, the shame, and accept my misery because I'm too proud to do anything with it anyway. Or I think what most of us do is we self-edit. We start downplaying our sins. We bolster our spiritual resume, compare ourselves to people who might not have uh, as much maturity as we do, which is actually a, a pretty big indicator of immaturity. And we use our resume of doing good to justify our ability to connect with God. But here's the deal. You do that, and it keeps you from true confession, from real repentance. And, and, and what happens? Paul talks about, or excuse me, Luke in, in Acts, he talks about what happens when real repentance is underway. It brings times of refreshing, brings this little burst of revival. And so if you're self-editing, you don't get to tap into that real repentance and the revival that comes after it. And if that's not happening on an individual level, it's not going to see this, we're not going to see this revival happening on the larger scale. Now, these are just a few of the schemes that the devil, a few major schemes that the devil uses to, to kind of undercut the, the movement of revival, the longing that we have for revival. And you've probably experienced them. Like, I hope for a lot of you, like, this makes sense. This can sort of, like, give you some sort of way to, to reckon with what's going on in your life right now or in the recent uh, past. And so even exposing these schemes is helpful for us. Right, this is what Paul wants. Verse 18, he tells us he wants us to be alert with all perseverance. He wants us to have this awareness about what's going on in the sort of dark and demonic forces that's working against the kingdom of God. So we can keep our God up, but he, guard up. But even more than that, God wants to equip us to fight, to wage war against it. Not to be passively defending, but actually to go against it. So he shows us what it looks like to be a soldier of God. What, this is why we have this armor imagery here in verses 14 through 18, right? Because this is a spiritual fight. We have to fight with spiritual weapons. Now take a look at this, verse 14 with me. Here, here he's listing off all of the, 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 the weapons, the resources that we have at our disposal as Christians. He says, stand therefore having fastened the belt of truth. Well, why a belt of truth? Satan wants to humiliate. Satan wants to depants you. Like, you know what I'm talking about? Like high school, you're standing in the locker room, or you know, in the locker, and somebody comes up, and he wants you to be humiliated. He wants you to be stunted by the lies he's telling against you. And so we put that belt of truth on. Put the belt of truth on. And he says, where am I at? Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Because here's the reality. So this breastplate doesn't say that you're not going to get hit. In fact, the breastplate tells you you're probably going to take some punches. Like, like the, 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 the breastplate is there to, to sort of protect you and keep those blows from caving in your chest. And so, therefore, your identity is not wrapped up in your own identity. See, this is what we're putting on. 
It's Christ's identity that's covering us, that's encapsulating us so that we would be safe. He's gifted us his righteousness that keeps us protected so that when the enemy comes and is trying to blow, take those major blows, they don't actually hit us. Christ absorbs them. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So we, we put on shoes because we're ready to roll. We're not caught laying on the couch, right? Feet up. Our, our, our shoes are strapped on because even while you're fighting, even while you're engaging, you're ready to run with the news of peace, right? The true peace that comes only in Christ, defeating evil, not in some sort of uh, counterfeit peace where we just call a truce with the devil and sort of, he does his thing, we do our own thing. That, that's not the vision God has for our fight. He says, put up the shield. He gives us a shield in all circumstances. Say all. All circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all. Say all. All the flaming darts of the evil one. The shield is something we hide behind. It deflects the flaming arrows because not only is Satan rustling up close, but he wants to pick us off from a distance. He wants to set up and snipe at us. And so with the shield of faith, it neutralizes whatever object is flying at us. And then he says, take the helmet of salvation. Take the helmet of salvation. He's not saying, he's, it's not take the helmet of protection. Take, take the helmet of last defense. No, he says, take the helmet of salvation because we fight not from a place to win, but a place of victory. Because with Christ already, even though we're in the midst of a fight, we're already conquerors with Christ. And then he says, take the, the sword, which is the word of God, the sharp sword of the gospel, which slices Satan. There's, see, Satan is standing in between us and God, his schemes, and this sword slices through, so there's nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now, when I envision myself with the armor of God, maybe you, you can relate to this, I feel like what little boy David felt like when he was about to go up against Goliath, right? That story where he puts on all of the, the, the pieces of armor that are really meant for men, and David's just this little, little boy, and he's so big and saggy that he just takes it off anyway. That, that's kind of what I, I feel like when I envision putting on the armor of God. It's too big for me. How am I supposed to pick up, how am I supposed to pick up that sword? Right? How am I supposed to move around in that stuff? Because I'm kind of a wimp, guys. But here's the key to this. It's in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You are not standing in your own ability, Christian. This stuff that you have at your disposal is, is in, it's in, empowered by Jesus. It's the power of the gospel. We've seen last week we talked about how the power of gospel opens doors. The power of the gospel takes things that are wrong and makes them right. Well, here we see the power of the gospel at work where it gives us certain victory. It's the power of Christ working in us. But we're not fighting to win. We're, we're not fighting from this place of uncertainty of, man, fingers crossed, I hope we come out on top. No, we're fighting from a place of already secured victory, and it's been proved by Jesus successfully defeating sin, death, and the grave on the cross. And he, he went to the cross, he died the life that we deserve. 
And by the power of God, he was resurrected. See, that proves Jesus has won. And one day, he will eradicate every single rival, every single force of, and servant of darkness that's working against the kingdom of God. See, that's the position of victory that we're operating from. So therefore, it's not our power, but it's Jesus' power that's embedded in us through his union with him that empowers us to fight. You want to know what? Prayer is the conduit that relays that power to us. Look at verse 18. It says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert and perse uh, with persever all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints. Prayer is given greater prominence than any other weapon here in this soldier's getup because it is foundational to the deployment of every other weapon that we have at our fingertips. Prayer, we've talked about this, prayer is what ignites revival. It ignites our longing for it, and God is working through it so we can really tap into the power he offers. But if you look at the last part of verse 18, Paul reminds us that it's not just, it's not just I'm not just one soldier in this fight, right? Paul, Paul places us in the, the context of an entire battalion, that we are, we are doing this fight together in our missional communities, as a church, in our fight clubs. We're like a soldier who has his brother's back. That, that when we fall, when we stumble, we pick each other up. We go to war for them. When I'm hit, you can drag me back to the gospel so I can be revitalized and be mended in Christ. That we can, and then we can just re-engage once again and go back after it to push back darkness. See, this is the fight that we're in, guys. This is a communal fight. This is a real fight. This is a spiritual fight. This is a fight that we are capable of fighting and experiencing victory in because of Christ. And if in your, you're in here this morning, you're not yet a Christian, listen, I, I want you to know that right now there is a war being waged for your soul. You might not be aware of it, but there's a war being waged for your soul. On one side, you have Satan. Whose goal, his goal is not to make you a Satan worshiper. His goal is to make you a worshiper of anything but God, whether that's your career, your family, your money, your comfort. And you worship that, and you will be prevented from worshiping and knowing and loving the real Jesus. You, you pursue those things, and he will, little by little, eat away at your soul until there's nothing left. And on the other side, you have Jesus. And his goal is to give you life to the fullest, to make you satisfied and complete in him. And he's willing to do it. He's willing to save you from your own destruction by being destroyed himself on the cross. See, he's the one who fought. He's the one who wins. He's the one who wants to welcome you on to the winning team. I pray that you would accept his invitation. Father, we thank you for the reality that you are powerful. And so often we forget how powerful you are and how that power is made accessible to us in Christ. God, would you move in power? 
would you help us to put on the whole armor of God that we may stand against the devil. And as Peter tells us that as we, as we resist the devil, he will flee from us. God, give us power to fight. Give us a resolute mind to know that it's worth it, that fighting for Jesus, fighting for our joy in him, fighting for union with him is worth it. Give us distaste for all of the idols, all of the distractions. Protect us from discouragement. Help us to see the schemes and to counteract them in the power of your spirit, God. We ask this, that you would, you would do this work in your church, that you would bring us to a fullness of life in Christ. And we pray, God, that you would bring revival, that you would rend the heavens and come down. We pray this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Thank you.